एंड वेलकम टू द प्रिज्ञा अरोरा शो वे वी डिस्कस लॉ एंड ऑन्टरप्रिन्योरशिप विद पीपल हु हैव बीन देयर एंड डन दैट माय नेम इज प्रिज्ञा अरोरा एन इंटेलेक्चुअल प्रॉपर्टी लॉयर फ्रॉम इंडिया एंड आवर गेस्ट फॉर टुडे इज मिस्टर रास क्रैजैक who is the ceo of blue iron ip and i welcome him on the show welcome ras how are you doing it's a beautiful day i'm happy to be here thank you thanks for having me thank you ras and to begin with our warm up question and something fun who is your favorite fictional legal character fictional yeah. legal character <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's pretty small universe um yes but uh, you know uh, i'll tell you one one person who i really i really liked their story was uh dennis crouch he's an actual i've actually met him he's an actual person he's not fictional but yes um i uh, he and i started blogging about the same time pro- you know it's probably early 2000s um back when blogs were were weird and nobody was doing it um and his story he doesn't tell it very often but he was a low um a, a low lowly associate at this big law firm and they gave him the unenviable task of writing summaries for all the the court opinions for the um court of appeals for federal circuit so his job was to grind out these these little snippets of the court opi- court opinion send it to all the partners and you know it was a thankless job um but he said oh can i just post this on the internet and do it in a blog format and he was able and so they let him do it as a second first year second year associate and within a year he had been on the front page of the wall street journal twice wow. because he was the de facto voice of of intellectual property yes and you know that opened up a bunch of doors for him and you know and his career took off because of it um but it kind of speaks to that notion of do the thankless job and you know if you do a good job of it and you and you know some doors will open which wow. um you know he was able he was he was very successful with that yeah i think every intellectual property lawyer is familiar with his blog and i didn't know the story behind it so, uh, so you, as you said sometimes a thankless job can turn out to be a big business <laughs> oh yeah yeah it opened a lot of doors for him and and um you know it, when you look at you know you can't name any other partners of his firm yes 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 absolutely except except for him you know at least yeah. from that original that original um you know law firm that he was in he's you know now he's a professor at um Mizzou and um Columbia at the law school so he's done very well for himself because of it amazing so ras now coming back to you can you tell us your life story and how did you came up with <laughs> blue iron ip <laughs> my my life story is not nearly as interesting as dennis's i'll tell you um i uh, i was a, 
I was an engineer for a bunch of years, probably 13 years or so. I'd been through the patent process a couple of times as an inventor, you know, a, an inventor in a corporate environment, which means I submitted my invention disclosure form. And then some patent attorney called me. I talked to them. We signed some papers and, you know, a patent came of it. Um, and I got my hundred dollar bonus, which was the coolest part. And I had an invention outside of work that I wanted to bring to market. And I went to a patent attorney who was on my hockey team and the, he gave me terrible, terrible business advice. He gave me no business advice. In fact, he just said, well, you could do this. You could do a provisional application. You could do a non-provisional. You could do a search. You could do this. You could do that. I'm like, well, wh what do I want to do? You've been down this road before. Help me out. And he's like, well, uh, you know, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he just would not give me the advice I needed. And so I was so furious with that, that I took the patent bar, became a patent agent. And then I wound up working for that same guy for about three years to learn how the business worked. And the, you know, I was sensing the conflict of interest that, you know, the patent attorney was just trying to sell hours, trying to sell a product to me. And the less I knew about the product, the less informed I was, the less he was going to help me, you know, and, and it's a business about grinding out hours and, you know, taking advantage of, well, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, I think in a lot of cases, you patent attorneys do take advantage of their clients and take advantage of their ignorance. Yeah. And they, uh, inventors, be it small companies, be it independent inventors, think, oh, well, I have a patent attorney, therefore I'm, um, I'm protected. Um, and they don't realize that you're asking the barber if you need a haircut and you're going to get one every single time. And so this inherent conflict of interest between the attorney and the client, the attorneys recognize it. They understand the, the liability that they have. So that's why, and this is what I learned in the law firm, you never give advice to the client because if you do, you're liable. If, if, if you come to me with some perpetual motion machine invention and I tell you, you know, I don't think you should get a patent. Yeah. Even though it goes against my interest because mm -hmm. I need, you know, I get paid when I do the patent. If, if, you're, if I tell you, no, don't get a patent on that perpetual motion machine, but somebody down the street does and they make, you know, millions of dollars, you sue me, but you don't sue me for just the cost of the patent. You sue me for all your lost profits in every country of the world for the next 20 years. So my advice as a patent attorney comes with astronomically severe liability. Yeah. And the clients don't realize that liability, but the attorneys do. Yes. And so there's these two factors. One is the huge liability. The second factor is just, you know, 
the asking the barber if you need a haircut kind of thing. The, the patent attorney wants to write the patent. They don't, they don't care. They don't take any risk in the patent. They get paid up front. And the perverse incentive of a patent attorney is that the worse job you do writing the patent, the more you get paid to fix it with the back and forth with the examiner. So there's so many factors that, that I think hamstring the patent um, profession that I created this thing called Blue Iron. And in Blue Iron, we don't represent clients. We finance patents. And if I finance your patent, I essentially do it on a leaseback model. But you can walk away from the deal and leave me with the patent. So my risk is that you stick me with the patent and I have to go sell it or license it or whatever. So I have this incentive to do a good job with a patent and I don't get paid up front. I get paid after the patent issues. So I got, I got skin in the game. I got money on the table saying that I can do a good job creating the asset and, you know, I'm willing to take the risk. And so I tried to, with blue iron, I try to turn the tables to say, I'll put money on the table that I will guarantee I'll do a good job. And if you don't like it, walk away from it and I'll take the patent. Awesome. So awesome, Russ. I know, you know, uh, starting this business have been a little difficult because of so many risks involved in it. So do you analyze the technologies first and then uh, put your efforts into it? Or how is the process? Like, can you tell us something about the process? Say, uh, for example, if I am an inventor and I come to you with some clean energy technology, what would you ask me to do? Okay. You know, uh, what are, uh, patents have value. Yeah. when product is in the market. Correct. Okay. So how do I, you know, if I'm, if I'm investing in this company by financing their patent, I want to see, I want to see revenue. Yes. I want to see a track to get to revenue. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know, an idea is absolutely worthless until it gets into the market. And a lot of people say, oh, well, I got some idea for some multi-trillion dollar clean energy nonsense. Mm -hmm. Well, great. That, that's absolutely worthless. If you had an installed base of 10 billion, you know, unit, <laughs> $10 billion worth of product out there okay. that are producing this green energy, Yes, we have a good business. We have value. Yeah. But there's a lot of, there's a mistake between actual value and potential value. Got it. You look at it and say, oh, I have some green energy nonsense that, oh, wouldn't it be great if, if everybody had this at their house and was creating energy? Yeah, that'd be great. But it's not reality. And potential. Uh, you know, if I look at the potential, it could be a trillion dollars, but what's the reality? The reality is zero. And so when I'm looking for, if I'm going to invest in a patent, I'm looking at 
does the entrepreneur have the right financial backing to bring the product to market? Do they have the right skill set? Do they have the right connections in their Rolodex? Do they have the, you know, have they proven the technology somehow, prototyping? Uh, you know, do they have this, the marketing savvy to bring this thing to market? Have they proven that with some kind of market acceptance? If they've done that and they look like they're going to be successful, or have a good, a high chance for success, then I'll finance the patents, you know, and I'll build out a portfolio, a bigger portfolio than they can normally afford. I'll build out a better portfolio than they can normally afford. And I'll insure the patents. So they have the ability to enforce the patents. And then on top of that, if they hit some revenue targets, we could loan five, 10, $50 million to the company using their IP as collateral. Yes. So it changes the whole conversation from, oh, I just want a patent because I'm afraid somebody's going to steal my idea, which is kind of the worst reason to get a patent. It changes that conversation into we're creating assets. We're going to monetize the app. We're going to put those assets to use. We're going to protect those assets so that we can use them um, for enforcement, for licensing, for cross-licensing, for standard essential patents, for whatever. And that's kind of what Blue Iron is all about. Wonderful. You know, your business, the approach you have towards business just blows my mind that I, I want to learn that how this industry works and everything. So another question that I want to ask is, you know, patent process in itself is a kind of a longer process. Like uh, in India, we generally take three to five years to get a grant. I think in US, we have a time period of our, from about one to three years. So, okay. So when is the actual, uh, what is the life cycle and what is the timeline when the revenue starts coming up from a technology? Well, you know, first off, patents do not have to take that long. Yeah. Um, there's a thing called patent prosecution highway, which is... Um, I don't know if India has it or not, but um, it, it, there's some there's some agreements between multiple countries where each country will accept the uh, or would recognize the examination done in a different country. Correct. And when you have allowable subject matter in a foreign country, in a different country, or in a different situation, you get in the U.S. special status, which yeah. means a 14-day turn on every, every office action. Yeah. And so, and you can, you can get this first examination in multiple ways. One, one way is to get a PCT application and get, get the examination quickly. And if there's allowable subject matter, then you're able to use this thing called patent prosecution highway in the US. It's also available, I think, in Europe and in um, Japan, and uh, there may be other countries as well that would that are that participate. And so you, the 
the way to get patents reliably and quickly is to filing file them somewhere. Yeah, and it might be PCT. Uh, Singapore is exceptionally fast. Yes, um, you can expedite in Australia or you can expedite in Canada, for example, pretty quickly, and get allowable subject matter. Then come back to the U.S. and get special status and get a quick examination. The benefit of this is a couple, a couple of things. One is two different examiners look at the claims. Yes. So you have pretty good assurance that what's going to be allowed is, you know, is pretty tight. Um, you can contrast it with the USPTO has this thing called track one, which in my view is a complete I shouldn't say complete disaster, but it's a disaster. It skips all that, goes to special status right away. And the examiners are encouraged to do a, they're financially incented to do a very quick examination and get the thing either allowed very, very quickly, or they kick you out of the program as fast as they can and get you to final status. Yeah, and so they have their incentive is not to do a good job; is to do a fast job. Yeah. And the here's the thing: is that track one cost about the same as a PCT application. Yes, and so you could do a PCT with with the double examination with uh, and get get a PCT application for international filing at the same cost as track one. And by doing that, you get a better application, you get it allowed faster than track one, and you, you, you know, with PPH, you keep your special status through appeal. So there's no way the examiner can kick you out of the program. Awesome. And so we can, you know, when, when, when the business needs it, we could get patents typically six to nine months on PPH, yes. which means we could finance the patents today. We could hustle the patents. PPH takes a little bit more work on the patent, on the patent attorney, which is why lazy patent attorneys do track one instead of PPH because yeah. it's just less work. Yes. But once we get, you know, if, if the business needs it, we could finance the patents. We can get the patents issued relatively quickly and within a year if they're hitting the revenue targets we could loan against those assets yeah and the beauty of this is that we can do a, a series a series b series c level financing purely on assets that we will will finance the creation of yes. we'll finance the creation of the asset and then we'll loan against it and so you don't get diluted with with you know another round of investment and and so on. Great, great, absolutely. So, uh, just to give you an idea about India, we gen currently have PPH only with Japan and not uh, with US or any other country. But we foresee uh, PPH with other countries very soon, so that we can also you know take some Good. approaches of faster. Uh, Patent prosecution. Let's see how time comes up well, for us. <laughs> I'll get, you know, it's a, um, it, 
the to me the best part is two examiners look at it yeah so we have you know a much higher um confidence in that asset yes um and the incentive is not to not to just get it done fast it's to get it done well and so i really like the pph process and i'm surprised how few people know about it and how few people you know actually use it yeah definitely <laughs> Uh, so ras now you have been financing various kind of technologies and ip what according to you is the may most uh, favorable technology area you know uh, the anything anything where we have decent consumer or customer doesn't have to be the end user consumer it could be b2b but anything where we have customer good customer feedback and good customer engagement yeah um it's really about investing in a business that has a good chance of success and not just an idea ideas are you know ideas are worthless but if you have somebody who <laughs> who has that talent stack Yeah. of bringing a product to market of recognizing you know how to how to communicate the value of the, of the product and they have the ability to go out there and sell the product it's it's probably going to do pretty well and the question is can we get patents to help protect th their investment in their marketing and maybe we can maybe we can't but if we can it's a good synergy yeah it is just like uh, you know a typical investor he says that i don't invest in company i invest in the person or the founder of the company well, uh, you know uh, i think that's kind of trite <laughs> but I, you know uh, there's um the ideas you know it, the ideas are just 1% of the product yes, yes. 1% of the work <laughs> the rest is execution okay. and the if you know you have a good idea with no execution is still worthless so you want to invest in the people who are likely to to you know grind it out and be successful perfect yeah so uh, another question uh, i know it's a you know dicey space so do you see a, a more or less or what is the number uh, of patents re regarding computer technologies in financing because it's a tricky space as far as uh, uspto and other patent offices are concerned um you know there's a uh, there's a bunch of misinformation about about software patents and patentable subject matter and that kind of stuff um um once i you know to kind of talk about my story a little bit back in the day when i i worked for this patent attorney for about 3 years then i went to law school then i opened up my shop as a uh, as a patent agent while i was still in law school and there i was able to do a lot of patents for microsoft probably 3 400 of them so i you know i've done a, a large amount of software patents um most software patents are worthless 
but not because they're software patents. The fact that they're software patents really doesn't matter. It's just it's a machine that does something, no different than Eli Whitney and the cotton gin. It does something. Um, most software patents are worthless because they're undetectable. Like if I have some machine learning AI blockchain nonsense that happens on a server somewhere, will I ever have access to source code to find out that they're using my, you know, machine learning algorithm? The answer is no, I never will. And so the net effect of the patent is that we took the most precious secrets of the company and we gave them away to the world and in return we got a we got patent claims that are undetectable meaning they're unenforceable and so i see a lot of people running out to get patents on algorithms and patent office will grant those all day long and patent attorneys are more than happy to take the money to get these but they destroy the company well my angel group, we looked at a company that had a cybersecurity product that was a, a software patent. And one of the angel investors at, um, at a previous angel group had told them, well, that, that's really interesting IP. You should get a patent. And he, the, the inventor was, no, I don't think we should. Oh, no, you should get a patent, the angel investor said. So he went out and got a patent. And thankfully, by the time I was doing the due diligence, the patent had never been published. But if that patent had been published, it would have laid out for all the hackers, this is exactly how we track you. This is exactly what we look for and how we respond if we see that you're hacking us. And so it would have, that patent would have completely decimated the, um, the value of the company and it was purely done because an investor, a, a so-called angel investor, kind of strong-armed the entrepreneur into getting a patent. And thankfully, what we were able to do is abandon the patent, do an express abandonment, and make sure that that patent is forever secret and never sees the light of day. And, and the patent attorney wrote the patent. There was a patent attorney who wrote the patent. And took that that entrepreneur's money and wrote a patent that would have decimated the company, and it's shameful that the patent attorney even took that money, and the patent it's shameful that the patent attorney even you know should have had the confidence to tell them this is a bad idea, but sadly that doesn't happen, and that's that is really what the problem is with software patents more so than. The, you know, the whole patentable subject matter nonsense that's, you know, going on. Absolutely. You know, you have explained it beautifully well. And I know it is a sad situation uh, where uh, few attorney, they do not tell the inventors that it, it's harmful to actually file a pa- patent on a software mm-hmm. when it can be protected. It's, as it's, as not, it's not harmful to get patents on software. It's harmful to get patents that are undetectable. Correct. It's harmful to get patents that hurt the company. And it doesn't have to be software that, and, that harms the company. You know, a chemical formulation, a method of manufacturing is a classic example. Yeah. Oh, I got this great method of manufacturing. I could produce widgets 10 times faster than everybody else. 
Well, that's something that should be in a factory behind closed doors. It's never something that should be in a patent. Yet patent attorneys take the money, harm their clients, and get method of manufacturing patents for their clients. And think about, you know, the methods, methods are infringed when and where they're produced. So in the U.S., if I find out that my competitor is using my method of manufacturing and I sue them, what could they do? Well, they could pack up their uh, pack up their machines and move to Mexico or Canada or India or Zimbabwe or wherever. And they can make that product without infringing. Think about, you know, a lot of a lot of software patents are bad because of this, you know, the the benefit of cloud computing. If I have a software product that works in the cloud and I sue that, you know, I sue a competitor, what can they do to get around it? They could take one limitation of my claim and put it on a server. And with one click of a button, they can move that server to Europe or Canada or Vietnam or wherever. And so the infringement never occurs within the jurisdiction because of cloud computing. And so there's a lot of stuff that the technology is sophisticated enough and, you know, and it, and it works, it doesn't work well with the patents or the patent system doesn't work, work well with that, where, you know, if I had a patent in all these countries, maybe I could enforce that kind of distributed um, infringement. Yeah. But th- th- so there's there's things that the patent system just doesn't cover. Absolutely. And, and yet patent attorneys still take the money. <laughs> that's the, you know, that's the shameful part. Yeah. Um, patent attorneys aren't, you know, they have a they have a financial interest in getting paid today to write that patent. I know, uh, and rest, sometimes what happens is, you know, even if we uh, we are telling the inventors don't file the patent for this, I think there are there have been instances that I have pleaded the inventors don't file because, as you said, the IoT patents have this uh, uh, problem of the, the server can be shifted anywhere in the world. Uh, and the inventors go- still <laughs> say, yeah, but I want one anyway. But I I want a patent. I want a patent. You know, you you can withdraw from representation. Correct. You don't have to take their money. Um, you can withdraw from that. You can say, you know what, I, I don't think that this is your best interest. And for your benefit, I'm going to withdraw. You could go down the street to another less ethical <laughs> yeah. attorney. But you always have that option. You're not required to do it. Happens with me all the time, especially when people, they do not understand that why why we are telling them not to file an application. (laughs) So, yeah. But you're you're kind of, you're stuck in that. Yes. In that situation. The client really, really, really wants the patent. and for a lot of clients, getting a patent, for a lot of inventors, getting a patent is a very, you know, it's a badge of honor. It's a Correct. huge accomplishment. And 
it's it's an accomplishment that's so important to them that they would be willing to risk the fate of their company to get that patent and you know and, and nobody's but the thing is nobody's talking about this yeah and so you know patent attorneys and even the patent offices themselves make it out to be a really huge accomplishment which it is but at the same time it comes with a trade-off that nobody's you know hurts hurts the patent bar if you right. know if we tell people don't get patents <laughs> we're cutting our own throat right so that's why that's the conflict of interest that you know nobody wants to talk about correct absolutely and nobody talks about this i agree with you 100% why should they you know we're we're making money and the best thing is if we can get somebody who has some machine learning blockchain distributed whatever kind of invention that thing's never going to get enforced yes and so you know nobody will ever find out that i did a terrible job writing that patent application because it's never going to see the light of day and so uh, you know and people start charging a premium for software patents because they're software patents and the market will bear a higher price the, the truth is the software patents are far easier to do than what's a quote simple mechanical invention those are brutally hard um but whatever the market will bear more uh, uh, for software patents i don't think i agree with this one because software is a tricky part especially when it a lot of jurisdictions are involved so we have to you know do our checks and balances and whenever uh, i think attorneys are struck stuck with the inventors like they want to file a patent it's very it becomes absolutely necessary to you know determine what part of an invention can go into the application and what part of it should be kept as a trade secret so i think right. one one uh, important area and it takes a lot of analysis to determine that we have to give a very small part of an invention in the patent application and rest of it we have to suggest that it should go in a trade secret so there the job it kinds of uh, takes more time that, well the part of that it also depends on what's the business model of the Correct. client Absolutely. if the client is providing this you know software as a service then a lot of the stuff that happens in the cloud is probably should, you know, probably should be a trade secret. Correct. If the client is thinking about licensing their IP to other people who are going to build the product, then you might want to consider getting patents around the stuff that happens in the cloud. Yeah. And it really depends on their business model. And the unfortunate thing is the business model changes. Yes. You know, at first they think, oh, I'm going to go to market with a software as a service product. And then, you know, and then they might want to switch to a licensing model later, but the patents were created for a software as a service model may not be exactly what you wanted later when you figure out that you want to do a licensing model. And, you know, the, the, it's not, uh, there's no simple solution. And, you know, you're highlighting a lot of the problems that, well, it's not a problem. It's just a a thing that we have to navigate yeah. as we build out, you know, make the right decisions 
with the information that we have at the time for how how best to get patents or IP protection. Yes. So Russ, now uh, this podcast is about you and legal entrepreneurship. So let me ask, ask you some questions about you. So what keeps you motivated and how do you work? Like what, what are a, a few elements that keep you motivated? Um, I, you know, I, for me, the thing that, that, I, that really motivates me is to learn something new or add a new skill set. I like the, um, I like being able to master something new and explore something new where, whether it be, um, you know, how to, how best to create a website or online marketing for, for the ideas, how best to communicate, you know, some of these concepts that we're talking about. Um, how, what's the best way to find those clients that will be, you know, where this would resonate with them? Um, you know, that's a different challenge than the challenge of how do I craft a good argument for a patent examiner? And each one of those, you know, each one of those skills is a different skill. And to me, the fun part is, adding you know adding another layer to that skill stack and being able to experiment with them once i get you know i I, with every skill you kind of reach a level of competence and you feel comfortable you know you kind of conquer it for a little bit and you know once i conquer something i kind of feel bored with it and then i move on to something else and then it, oftentimes I go back to that skill that I thought mm-hmm. I conquered and figure out they got a lot more to learn yeah. with it. And so you, you know, are constantly kind of moving forward with that. Um, that That's probably the best thing for, you know, the thing that makes me excited and <laughs> makes me roll out of bed and, you know, shuffle down to my, uh, <laughs> the, the good thing about working from home is I wake up at <laughs> I wake up in the morning I'm still at work right so yeah. <laughs> grinding away um at on the next project awesome it's so interesting to meet like-minded people who believe in learning who want to you know stay excited so for me also it's like random skills I'll learn random skills and I'll be like let let's see how it goes <laughs> So now, uh, now Russ, coming to our three to one rapid fire round very quickly, three things you are grateful for. Three things I'm grateful for. Um, you know, certainly I'm, I'm grateful for my health and, uh, and my family and, um, and, I'm, you know, and, and I'm very thankful that um, I live in a, in in an, a land and a time where there's so much opportunity, um, the, the, you know, being able to pick up and try a new business idea is it's never been easier than it is now. And it will constantly keep getting easier. And so, um, you, you know, I would, I wouldn't change that for the world. Yeah, time and technology, land, uh, with land, it makes it appropriate for us to start new business from anywhere in the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I got a client who sells, 
who sells product on Amazon, you know, and, and he can order stuff off of Alibaba, have it shipped directly to to Amazon who does fulfillment and, (laughs) you know, they handle shipment and returns and he doesn't even have to touch the product. I mean, (laughs) and it's, and you can do that with very little capital. And so the, the opportunity, you know, the opportunity cost for missing out on some of that is actually pretty high. I mean, you can, um, you can get a lot of businesses going with, for, you know, that 20 years ago, we just didn't have that. It would I'm have been sure. a lot more capital intensive. I'm sure pe- uh, people who listen to this podcast will try this idea very soon. <laughs> oh, sure. Why not? I mean, yes. My, my 80 year old mother sells stuff on Amazon. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so there's, it, you know, it's open to everybody. Awesome. And now two traits you think are important and useful uh, for someone in the same field. Two things that are, that are important. Traits, habits or traits. Oh, habits or traits. Um, you, you know, the, the, the biggest trait is, um, learn is learning from mistakes and kind of the corollary to that is not be afraid of mistakes. Um, the, you know, if I, if I write a patent application and the examiner allows it, did I do a good job? I don't know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's when I, it's when the examiner comes back and, says what about this what about that or you know here's some prior art how do you differentiate over it or whatever that's when i figure out if i did a good job yeah writing the patent you know i don't i'm not looking at the part that was successful i'm looking at the part that that had the problem and if i can look at that the next patent i write is going to be better yes and and that you know that happens all through life you know, if something went well, you don't learn nearly as much as if something went went badly. So don't be afraid to make mistakes and learn from your mistakes. Well, it, it, and try to make, try to, you know, perturb the system and see where it breaks. Perfect. Try to shake it up. Um, be intention, almost be intentional about making those mistakes so that you can learn from them. Yes. And one aspiration you have for the future. One aspiration, um, I, you know, I'm I'm very very upbeat about the future. Um, the the opportunity that I've seen you know, through my lifetime, and and um, you know, and the way society works, the way technologies advance the way the economy is shown you know an incredible resiliency i think it bodes very well for the future um and uh, i you know i don't know i don't know that you can or even should or even bother to point out what is going to be you know the winners or the losers in the future i think um i think there's just a ton of opportunity here and it's up to us to capitalize on it 
Uh, and Russ, to conclude, can you share some key takeaways for young lawyers and entrepreneurs? Um, you know, the, the thing I encourage entrepreneurs to do is, and, you know, for law, young lawyers too, is think about their skill stack. Yeah. And you want to build as many skills as you can in, um, in, you know, if, if you're learning. When I, when I took the patent bar and started working at a small law firm, I wanted to learn everything. I wanted to know how, how they did accounting. I wanted to know how we, you know, what, what do we use for case numbers and file numbers, how to organize the files together, file, you know, file naming conventions, whatever. I wanted to have the skill of being able to file everything with the patent office myself. I wanted to have the skill of being able to read my own, you know, proofread my own stuff. Um, I saw other attorneys or patent agents in the group who, who couldn't do any of those things. And they were dependent on somebody else, a paralegal typically to do all this work that they didn't feel comfortable doing. And so I wanted to learn how to do every single bit of it. And it's not that I needed to do all that stuff or that I was efficient at it, or in the future, I might not, you know, I might hire somebody to do that for me, but I needed to have that skill set. And, um, and, you know, as far as entrepreneurs, they should be thinking about the business that they're going in, in terms of how they can build on their skill stack. If they're not very good at marketing or whatever, take this opportunity to learn more about it and get better at it. If they're not good at manufacturing, take this opportunity to get better at it. Uh, with entrepreneurs, if they're, if they're any good, they're not going to have just one idea. They're going to have endless <laughs> ideas. Definitely. And so <laughs> if they can just use this time through the system to learn more about, you know, to add some skills, they're going to be much better prepared for the next idea. Awesome. And so, you know, there is no, there's no end to the journey. It's a journey. And our job as humans, our job as entrepreneurs, our job as lawyers are to, to travel that journey with the best, you know, with everything we have. Yes. And, um, and, you know, and be intentional about learning those skills be intentional about I I'm I'm going to go into this opportunity because it, I'm going to learn something new and yeah. choose that opportunity because it presents an opportunity to learn awesome just to reiterate uh, build your skill set choose your opportunities and enjoy your journey so yeah. thank you Russ for being on the show and sharing all the insights I'm sure our audience is going to love it Oh, enjoy, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey there. 
Thank you for attending today's session. If you enjoyed today's session, do follow our channel and consider sharing it with a friend. My name is Prigya Arora, daughter of inspiring parents, alumna of IIT Kharagpur, engineer turned lawyer and entrepreneur, and now founder of PA Legal, where we help creators and innovators protect their intellectual property. Thank you. Thank you.